You would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 43. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. i be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear now the word of the Lord. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Please bow your heads and pray with me. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. The year 1517. The setting, Wittenberg, Germany. The man, as you know, was Martin Luther. On October 31st, Luther confidently nails a piece of paper containing 95 theses to the door of the church, desiring to simply start a debate with the issues that he raised in his theses. Luther is completely unaware how each blow of his hammer is like flint on steel. Although the spark that results appears small, the results are a raging wildfire which affects the world in every degree. Religiously, politically, economically, socially. When Luther became a monk in his early 20s, he devoted himself to righteousness. Plaguing his mind was this question, how is a sinful man made right before a holy God? And if ever a man could earn his salvation, Luther was that man. 
In his own words, he says, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. I have no idea how freezing draws you closer to God, but apparently Luther believed it would. What else did I seek by doing this but God, who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? Elsewhere, he recalled, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fasting, vigils, and prayers, and other very rigorous works. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. At age 23, Luther was ordained to the priesthood. And studying over the next five years, he earned his Doctor of Theology from the university there at Wittenberg and was named a professor of Bible upon graduation. While he was copiously studying God's Word, he took his infamous trip to Rome where he was disgusted by the practices of believers there, trying to earn their righteousness before God. Vigorously shaken by his reading and understanding of the book of Romans, Luther struggled mightily in his soul. Inner turmoil became external struggles. Leading up to his nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the church, Luther and those in the surrounding area were being bombarded by the rhetoric of a traveling preacher by the name of Johann Tetzel. On behalf of the church, Tetzel was preaching in the area on a fundraising tour. The repairs of the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which was in a very sad state of affairs at that point, needed funding. And to raise this money, Tetzel was selling indulgences. Tetzel is most remembered for a particular phrase that we have derived from his preaching. It's a phrase that goes like this. Once a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It's a catchy little phrase. uh, Very theologically incorrect, however. Um, Ignorantly, common people played into his propaganda. Giving money to Tetzel meant that they could buy the forgiveness of sins, not only for themselves, but also for relatives. At the very least, they could purchase a shorter time spent in purgatory. When Luther heard about Tetzel's inflammatory preaching, a flame leapt up inside of him. Luther could not remain silent. So on October 31st, 1517, Luther reacted by calling people to a debate. And what followed was nothing short of a miracle. Providentially, a printer got his hands on the 95 Theses, and he distributed them all over Germany. Over the next several weeks, spreading like wildfire, these theses reached all over Europe, eventually landing in the hands of the Pope himself. Over the next several years, Luther went from an obscure yet diligent monk in Germany to a man who had a price on his head. He began writing theological works that would be the foundation of what we now refer to, obviously, as the Protestant Reformation. And because these writings would contradict much of the teachings of the church, Pope Leo would issue a papal bull against Luther and expel him from the church, 
And in 1521, Luther would have to defend his writings at the Diet of Worms. Trying to, trying to project my good German here. <laughs> at the end of the Diet, uh, Luther made his famous defense and is quoted as saying, Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. So as we look back on this period of history in the church, uh, we usually reflect on five phrases that came out of the Reformation. And we affectionately refer to them as the five solas. Recapturing the truths of Christianity was what the Reformation was all about. And these five solas do that. They are sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Solus Christus, through Christ alone. And soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Heath reminded me earlier this week that it is Reformation Sunday today. So I was trying to understand how I can incorporate the truths of the Reformation uh, into this passage. And as I was reading through it, I realized that God very clearly displays all five of these tenets of the Reformation in our passage this morning. So uh, I told Heath, you know, I'm going to try and figure out how to fit that Reformation in there. And as it turns out, these five solas are going to be the five points of our sermon this morning. So while we look at Luke 18, 31 through 43, we can plainly see how each of these truths play a role in the gospel. So let's start first with faith alone, with sola fide. So because of the Reformation, this great doctrine of, of Scripture was recovered, that sinful man is made right with a holy God through faith alone. Clearly, the blind man in Luke 18 had faith in Christ. When we first read of this man, he is sitting by the roadside and he's begging. Hearing the commotion of a large crowd, he asks others what is going on. And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. At this, at this point, the man begins shouting obnoxiously. If you were next to him, you would probably be elbowing him, saying, Be quiet. Settle down. Because of his blindness, the man doesn't know if Jesus is near or if he is far off. So he just begins shouting at the top of his lungs, trying to draw attention. And he says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Why does this man call Jesus the son of David? The people told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. In Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus asked the Pharisees this question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And without hesitation, they responded, the son of David. Although the crowd referred to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, the blind man was proclaiming something even more incredible about Jesus. By calling him the son of David, the blind man is telling the crowd that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. He believes that Jesus is the Savior. Calling for Jesus to have mercy on him also reveals something about this man's faith. Now, obviously, this man is blind. Because his world is always one of complete and utter darkness. 
He is constantly aware of his condition. He does not have to be told that he is blind and that in order to see, he must be healed. So with his cry for mercy, he seems to be saying more than simply, I want to be physically healed. Naming Jesus as the son of David, the Savior, the Messiah, invokes a sense of spiritual healing as well. The tax collector, uh, the one from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus told a couple of verses ago, these ones who both go up to the temple to pray, this tax collector also cries out to God for mercy. Humbly, he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When the blind man cries for mercy, he does so in the exact same vein. His need is spiritual as much as it is physical, and Jesus can heal both. Powerfully, Jesus speaks to the blind man. He says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. In an instant, the man sees for the very first time. I have no idea what that would be like. Um, If you look on YouTube and do a search for hearing for the first time, there are several videos out there that you can see of children or even adults that receive, say, a cochlear implant or some sort of medical technology when they're able to actually hear for the very first time. You see on their face just this, this look of just unadulterated joy, like, Seeing someone's mouth moving and hearing their voice is just pure joy to them. That is what this blind man experiences for the very first time. He can see, and Jesus has healed him. The man is beside himself, but we are left scratching our heads. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. What role did faith play in his healing? Through faith, Christ heals the blind man. Now, Jesus didn't heal the blind man because he had faith, because that would turn faith into a work. Mysteriously, Jesus heals through the man's faith, and faith is a gift graciously given by God. It ties very easily and very quickly into our second point, and that is by grace alone. As we read of Jesus' prediction of his death to his disciples and the story of the blind man that follows, we see a great contrast between these characters of the disciples and the blind man. Uh, Repeatedly, Jesus speaks to his disciples about his upcoming death. Uh, When Jesus makes this prediction in Luke chapter 18, this is at least the third time that he has told his disciples that he is going to die. Uh, Jesus adds new details in this description. He talks about the fulfillment of Scripture, the handing over of Jesus to the Gentiles, but the message remains the same that he has been repeating over and over again. Jesus will be killed, and Jesus will rise from the dead. Incredulously, we rail against these disciples when we read that they understood none of these things. Spending so much time with Jesus apparently wasn't having much effect on them. 
like me when I was younger, and as I often heard from my mother, it's like they were listening to what was being said, but it must be going in one ear and out the other. How could they not understand what Jesus was saying? While the blind man appeared to see who Jesus was, the disciples apparently were the ones who were blind. We tend to be hard on the disciples for their blindness, but we should ease our criticism just a little bit, especially in this instance. In his sovereignty, God did not allow the disciples to fully understand what Jesus was saying in this moment. In verse 34, Luke says, The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was being said. Revealing this understanding to the disciples was going to come, but it was going to come later. After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you remember that story, while on the road to Emmaus, Luke reports in Luke in 24 verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So this understanding is a gift. Salvation is through faith by grace alone. Graciously, God revealed to the blind man the truth concerning who he was. Revealing the truth to disciples was yet to come. Even though they had spent so much time with Jesus, the gift of sight was not fully given to them. Yet, when the timing was right, the gift was going to be given. At that time, the disciples would take that gift and they are going to use it in some of the most amazing ways that we have ever seen in history. They would be used by God in ways that we have never seen before as they boldly and fearlessly and relentlessly preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. But that gift was yet to be given. God decides when to pour out that gift of faith in His sovereignty He knows the proper time and the proper place for that precious gift to be given. It is through His grace alone. So that brings us to number three of the solas, sola scriptura. As I mentioned earlier, this is not the first time that Jesus predicts His death. In Luke chapter 9, He does it twice. After Peter confirmed, Uh, confessed that Jesus was the Christ in chapter 9, Jesus immediately follows up that confession by saying that uh, he would die. Predicting his death a second time came right after the transfiguration. Whereas his predictions remained the same, Christ adds details during the third one. And taking his disciples, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Clearly, the Scriptures play an important role. Out of His goodness and mercy, God gave us the gift of His Son, Jesus. And out of His goodness and mercy, God also gave us the gift of Scripture, giving us revelation of who He is and what He has done in written form that can be preserved and passed down from generation to generation. It is an incredible gift that we have God's Word. 
So what's the point of Scripture, and why do we say that it's through Scripture alone that we have salvation? Uh, Simply stated, Christ tells his disciples that he will fulfill all that was written because God recorded his promise of salvation to his people in his word. In God's sovereignty, he revealed his his plan of salvation from the very beginning, and he wrote it down for us. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 16 through 17, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, God reveals through Paul that he is the author of all of Scripture. I had an interesting encounter this past week as I was sitting in Starbucks uh, reading uh, my Bible. Uh, A man came up to me after ordering his coffee, and um, he, he saw that I was reading the Bible, and he said, oh, it's a good book that you've got there. And I said, Yes, it is. You never know where people are going to go when they start off with a, a comment like that. Um, and uh, so he says, do you know the author of that book? And I said, yes, I do. I said, it's God. And he said, that's right. And uh, we proceeded with a conversation. Turns out he's a, a pastor at a, a small Baptist church in Little Rock. Uh, he goes to Starbucks often. And uh, it was just a really um, neat conversation to have with a fellow believer Uh, talking about the truth that God has written Scripture. Because the author is God, we know that the words in Scripture are trustworthy and true. When God makes a promise in Scripture, He will fulfill it. He has promised that Christ would come to earth, and He will fulfill His promises when Christ comes again. Predicting his death, Jesus reminds his disciples of the truth found in Scripture concerning himself. And as the Westminster Confession states, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Recovering this truth, the Reformation restored God's Word to its rightful place in the lives of believers. It's our only rule of faith and practice, and one of the things that Scripture makes so clear to us is the next point, the next sola, is that solus Christus, that through Christ alone we have salvation. It's with a heavy heart that Jesus foretells His death to His disciples. This was his future. This was his purpose. This was God's plan. Listening to his words, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. Lightly, they brush aside his words. Surely not Jesus, they're thinking. But as Solus Christus reminds us that it is only through Jesus that we have salvation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Praying fervently to God, his Father, he cried out, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this cup that Jesus refers to is the cup that is filled with the wrath of God against sin. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, Because of the sin that you and I and every other person who has ever lived commit, the cup of God's wrath is completely full. And who could drink 
such a cup. No one except for Christ alone. There was no other way. From the beginning, God designed His creation in such a way that it would require the death of His one and only Son to accomplish the redemption of His people. Being made right with a holy God could only happen through the sacrifice of Christ. Bearing the intense weight of God's wrath could only be accomplished by God Himself. Innocently, but also arrogantly, Luther tried to achieve a right standing with God through personal floggings, through personal shameful treatment, through fastings, through prayers, through freezing. But from the beginning of creation, God's people have been trying to do the very same thing. But God, in His great mercy, has provided redemption for us. We don't achieve it. It is given to us. Dying on the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath, rising again from the dead three days later, Christ alone accomplishes salvation for us. Since salvation is accomplished for us, the only thing left for us to do is this, is to simply respond in faith. Following the example of the blind man near Jericho, our response is to acknowledge our own deficiency, and to put our faith in Christ. Humbly confessing our sins and trusting in Christ alone for salvation leads to a right standing before God, the one that Luther was seeking. Nothing else will. It is Christ alone. And in a world and a culture that celebrates personal achievement, that celebrates accomplishment, the gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished for us. Our calling is not to achieve, but to believe. And finally, to the glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria. If salvation could be accomplished in any other way other than through Christ, then the last of these solas, the soli Deo Gloria, could not be true. So if Luther could accomplish his own salvation, then Luther would be the one who would get the glory. If you and I could achieve our own salvation, we would receive the glory. During the fall in the South, you know that Saturdays are a sacred day. Uh, when Stephanie and I were at a restaurant a couple of night, uh, weeks ago on a Saturday night, we found it virtually empty. And we asked uh, the chef, who we were able to meet because it was empty, uh, what's going on? Why, why is everybody gone? And he said, the Razorbacks are on. <laughs> oh, of course. Even though the, they had a TV on there and uh, the game was being played. Um, in the game of football, if a player intercepts a pass and runs it back for a touchdown, who receives the glory? That player. He performed a spectacular play, and he receives the recognition. Giving credit where credit is due is part of sports. After Jesus performed the miracle of healing of this blind man, the people gave the credit where the credit was due. And in verse 43, it says, They gave praise to God. Soli Deo Gloria. Essentially, the Reformation had much to do with restoring the credit to where the credit 
was due. The solas of the Reformation all point to God's work in our salvation. Answering Luther's question of how is a sinful man made right before a holy God in any other way than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, places the glory upon someone or something else other than God. And who else besides God deserves any glory? And why does God deserve all the glory? If people do incredible things for their own glory, it, reveal, it, it leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Uh, selflessly, Jesus did an incredible thing, not for himself, but for his Father in heaven and for us. While we were yet sinners, Paul tells us in Romans, Christ died for us. Through self-sacrifice, Christ receives glory and honor and praise. And in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, singing his praises for all eternity, those around the throne of God say this about Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. So as we contemplate the Reformation in this incredible time in history, let us be reminded of these great truths regarding who we are, who God is, and how he has accomplished salvation. Asking the same question as Luther, may we come to the true answer that sinful man, that is you and I, are made right with a holy God, not through our own accomplishments, but through Christ alone and what he has done. Humbly, may we confess our sins to God. Confidently, may we trust in Christ. And joyfully and thankfully, may we give praise and glory to God, the one who is worthy. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for these great truths that by grace alone, through faith alone, in your Son, Jesus Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to your glory alone, you have given us salvation. Father, may we never desire to share your glory, but may we always live our lives so that they will shine the glory on you. Father, I pray that our lives will be witnesses for you. And we know that we can only accomplish this through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that credit would be given where credit is due, and that is to you. Uh, we thank you for the Reformation, for these great truths of Scripture that were recovered. We thank you for the men and women who even gave their lives so that we can hold your word in our hands, that we can read it in our language. We thank you for the ways that you have sovereignly preserved your gospel, and we know that you will sovereignly preserve it to the end. Use us for your glory, Father, and for the advancement of your kingdom. Give us sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.